Welcome to another episode of the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. This is just a quick note to give everyone listening to this podcast best wishes from the New Civil Engineer team. These are unprecedented times, and whatever you're doing and wherever you're working, however you're managing, we wish you well and look forward to meeting once again with many of you when it's all over. In the meantime, we'll continue to release episodes with special guests recorded from the safety of our own homes. Good luck and enjoy the podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor on New Civil Engineer and I'm joined today with our news editor Rob Horgan and feature editor Nadine Badu. Hello guys. Hi Claire. Hi Claire. So how are you guys coping with working from home? Uh, slightly challenging with uh, two little ones but other than that kind of re- working remotely isn't that bad actually it's it's all good. Likewise same for me obviously got a Six-week-old baby now, so uh, excuse any screaming outbursts you may hear in the background. But uh, other than that, all good. Brilliant. It does feel odd doing recording these without being able to see each other's faces, but we'll try not to interrupt each other too much. So we're two weeks on from the Department for Transport giving HS2 contractors notice to proceed on phase one of the project. It's definitely really welcome news against the backdrop of the impact of coronavirus is having on the sector. But that announcement seemed to surprise a lot of people. Should it have done? What do you think, Rob? Well, obviously, Boris Johnson announced that he would be giving notice to proceed in April and and the Department for Transport has stuck to that promise. Um, However, obviously, with everything going on with coronavirus, with sites shutting down and uh, pressure on on government funds, there was a lot of speculation that that notice to proceed might be delayed again. So it did come as quite a surprise to quite a lot of the industry, even as as uh, late as last week when I was talking to people at HS2 and and within the contractors who will be working on the job, there was there was real sort of doubt that it would actually be given the notice to proceed uh, during this current climate. I also thought that there was sort of some more demand to drive down the cost further before notice to proceed was going to be issued. Yes, as, as did we all. And as has HS2 been saying for the best part of two years when they've been in uh, locked in a sort of standoff with their contractors, demanding that the the costs uh, are driven down to meet um, what what ultimately appears to have been an unrealistic target. Uh, however, I think with the with the OKV review um, completed and the government has sort of taken taken the more realistic stance that it's going to cost more than originally thought, and uh, they seem to have uh, accepted the. The main civils works are a part of that additional cost. So when will actually work start on site? Is it already underway or is coronavirus restricting the contractors really getting going with things? Well, no, that's that's sort of a, a misconception of the, the notice to proceed in, in that it sort of gives the impression that, you know, it works going to start the day after. But in reality, we won't see main construction work uh, kicking in until sort of the autumn or maybe even early next year. The first TBM, for example, doesn't launch until next year. The main earthworks don't get away until next year as well. However, there's there's some bits and bobs that will happen towards the end of the year. Um, there's a lot of temporary structures that need to go in, a lot of groundwork that needs to be done as well. And there's obviously all the archaeological work that still needs to be completed. Um, but in the more short term, uh, what the notes proceed does is it injects a lot of cash into the supply chain. So main contractors will now be signing contracts with their suppliers, so hundreds and thousands of suppliers across the whole whole of phase one, um, which is a massive boost for the whole industry. Yeah, it's going to make a real difference with the coronavirus and everything. I do wonder if it's a shrewd move by the government to reduce the pressure on its furlough scheme with more of these contractors actually having work to do. Yeah, you would hope so. I mean, it definitely provides more security to the industry, not so much to the the sort of big tier one contractors, but 
it's, it's probably a bigger boost for the sort of tier twos, threes, fours, and all the way down the supply chain. You'd hope it would trickle down and, and spark a bit of economic activity. The one thing I haven't really seen at the moment is what the delivery timelines are for the project. Have they actually said what the end date or opening date might be? For phase one? Yeah. Yeah, I just wondered whether, you know, with notice of proceed being issued, whether anyone had actually put their um, finger in the air and said when it might open. I don't think they have at this point. However, they, they did have a revised time frame, which was announced at the Oakley Review. Uh, I Or not at the Oakley Review, sorry, at the Alan Cook stock take. They'd revised the construction timeline. But I guess they're probably learning the lesson from Crossrail having a definite opening date of December 2018, perhaps moving away from that and actually focusing on what work needs to be done before they declare an opening date. Definitely. As I understand it, there is a there's an op- there's a sort of two year opening window now when when phase one will be completed. Um, I can't remember the exact dates, but it's sort of late 2020s, early 2030s. Um, so that that's definitely more in line with what Mark Wilde was saying on the Engineers Collective a couple of months ago about not having the pressure of a, a fixed deadline to stick to, um, but still having some clarity as as to when it will be finished to get that public buy in. Yeah, I do think we'll see that more on major projects to come following Crossrail. So coronavirus is still a hot topic in the industry, especially where the site should or shouldn't be operating. We're more than five weeks into the lockdown in the UK now. So shouldn't we have some more clarity from government on what is an essential site and what isn't? Yes, definitely. In my opinion, I think there's a lot of confusion still. I mean, we've written a lot about this over the last few weeks about how contractors are sort of having to interpret what the government's saying themselves um, to almost put workers' safety against the economic stability of the company and by the government not producing a list of essential sites, uh, that's really open for interpretation. I know uh, we have started reopening sites now and um, we did a a story about the the first stainless steel bridge in Pooley Bridge being open again. Um, So it looks like more sites are starting to open up because of the economic pressures. So wasn't Bay supposed to be publishing a list of what is an essential site and which isn't? And if they are, why is it taking so long to actually produce? Uh, Yeah, this is something we spoke about on the last episode of the Engineers Collective. And I think at that time, Ireland had just published a list of essential sites and we expected the UK to do do the same in the the coming days at that point. However, we're still sort of two, well, nearly a month on now and we're still without that list which really the industry needs and um and uh, to be honest i have no idea why not i think i think they're reluctant to publish the listing because then as you were saying earlier it will drive more applicants to the furlough scheme and it'll mean more of the industry out of work and it will mean everything will slow down even further so i think with the construction sector they're they're eager for people to carry on but they just don't want to sort of nail their uh their colours to the mast. Colours to the mast. <laughs> yeah, nail their colours to the mast and, and say, keep going, because uh, obviously it's a bit controversial in terms of safety. But we're still publishing our daily briefing, aren't we, which is updating people on the, what they need to be looking at if they are still operating on site and, and how to operate safe safely on site if they have got people there. Yeah, that's still really helpful. And uh, as the Reisner at Seek is still putting that together on a daily basis and we're publishing it and putting it outside the paywall. Um, there's a lot of advice, or not so much. Well, there is advice for workers on site, but there's also a lot of advice for workers' mental health on there as well, which I think is a, is a massive um, massive thing at this time. Obviously, there'll be yeah. a lot of workers who are worried about, is it safe to go to work? They'll be worried about the impact that it'll have on them and their families and things like that. So I think, if anything, that that's well worth checking out. Yeah, because I think it's really hard to work with not knowing how long this lockdown is going to exist for or how long social distancing is going to exist for. Because one minute you see something in the national media talking about it ending within weeks and then it could be months or even a year before we get a a vaccine. And that's quite hard to deal with, isn't it? Yeah, it's very hard to deal with. I mean, it's hard enough for us to deal with it and we're sat at home working on our laptops. But I imagine for for construction staff having to still continue going out on site and, you know, they it is, it is impossible to keep that social distancing in all construction 
environments. I mean, it's just it's just not physically possible. It's not it's not doable. Um, so it must be equally worrying. So there must also be questions about whether it's safe to work as well when you're having to keep apart. You know, sort of if someone's holding a ladder or something like that, or you're waiting for someone to pass you tools. Def- definitely, yeah. We we've heard many stories about um, workers being told that they have to keep going to work, even though they have expressed safety concerns. Um, I'm sure we'll be running a few stories about that in the coming weeks. Um, so. Is is a tough one when workers have to choose between being paid or their safety, effectively. Mm. But one thing that really shows how the construction industry is pulling together and collaborating and, and really showing its innovation is the temporary hospitals that are being built up and down the country. We've carried quite a few stories about those, haven't we? Yeah, it's an incredible effort, really. And I saw a video yesterday, actually, of NHS staff clapping out the contractors. Can't remember which hospital it was now, but. Um, that was that was a really nice touch, I thought. And um, yeah, up and down the country, we've we've run stories of uh, engineers sort of turning big wastelands into car parks for NHS staff, and contractors coming in converting conference centres into hospitals, and it's all been done in incredibly quick time. So um, yeah, massive massive praise goes there. But it's also putting civil engineers on in the national media as well, which is going to be good for the industry too, hasn't it, long-term, people to understand the kind of things that our sector does and the capabilities it has. Yeah, definitely. I think the uh, last couple of years, the engineering sector has had a bit of a, a tough time with things like Grenfell uh, disaster and the Poultry Vera collapse as well, and, and rightly so. Um, and it was only this morning I was watching, uh, what should I say this morning? I say, and it was, it was only last week I was watching... Uh, an online lecture with Dame Judith Hackett about gaining the public public trust for um, infrastructure and for engineers, and a, a lot of a lot of this will go a long way to to building trust back again. Definitely, but I suppose the other benefits coming out of coronavirus is the benefit to the environment. There's less traffic on the road, and people are questioning whether it will create changes in work patterns as well as a result of the lockdown. People are used to working from home now, like we are now. And questioning whether there's a need for new roads, railways, and airports in the future. Would you think that's true? Uh, there's certainly a lot of discussion around it. Whether things will just go back to being normal, and whether whether our engineers want things to change or go back to normal, and is a, is a totally separate question. I think. I think your special report you did for last issue on climate change sort of uh, shed quite a light on on what engineers actually think of climate change and how seriously they're taking it. I don't know if you want to expand on that a bit more. Um, it was quite interesting. It wasn't really about um, what they, how much they care about. It's more a case of what they know, because it's kind of going back to the fact that you need to understand the climate science, climate change science, in order to understand what to put in place to deal with climate, the climate crisis and actually how to reach carbon net zero. So there, I think it showed that there's quite a long way to go in understanding about what we're actually working with. So I think until people really get their heads around that kind of thing, people aren't going to change their moving pattern, their travelling patterns, their working patterns as much. And I, I guess at the moment, it depends on how long this lockdown continues for. I guess if people are stuck in this position for months, then people do get far more used to it. A couple of weeks, you tend to go back to old patterns, don't you? Yeah, exactly. I think I think you're exactly right there the longer it goes on um like i said this morning maybe things like conferences maybe we'll see more online conferences so this morning the ICE's panel that i watched it was it was actually much nicer to watch it online rather than having to get into westminster for eight in the morning and then it opens it up to a totally different audience then as well so um i think yeah, things like it, that so it just um, makes everything less london centric doesn't it yeah, exactly. It opens it up to the rest of the UK and, and, and even to the world. Yeah. Definitely. The other thing I've seen is more discussion about using this period as an opportunity to look at projects differently, but not necessarily in terms of counselling, but about changing the approach. Um, Nadine, that's something you've been looking at for NC's May issue, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. The, I was working on a feature that focused on ACOM's work with Highways England, and they're just looking at kind of embedding circular economy thinking into some roads projects. So how does ACOM define its approach to circular economies? 
Um, so they were actually working on uh, kind of creating a specific working definition for the circular economy for their work with Highways England. Um, and the definition is is based on uh, the definition that's promoted by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And it's basically all about kind of these core principles that focus on designing out waste and pollution and making sure that kind of products and materials are in use for as long as possible across the project. Um, so kind of in essence, I guess, the circular economy aims to disrupt that traditional linear approach where you're kind of taking resources using them and then disposing of them so in contrast you've got circular economy thinking which is focused on kind of more sustainable resource management so which highways england's projects has acom been working on with this approach so so far acom has been involved with the a14 cambridge to huntington um, improvement scheme and then more recently the a303 amesbury to berwick down project as well and, and how's it changed what they're doing on those projects? Is there anything you can particularly pick out or has it just been a gradual incremental change on the projects? And so in terms of ACOM's involvement, inter- like integrating that circular economy thinking has been about kind of making sure they're embedding it into business as usual. So kind of things like planning a clear route for that sustainable resource management from the very outset of the project. So things like kind of accurately tracking materials and planning out what, say, infrastructure and requirements are likely to be available to manage those resources at the end of service life. And then kind of how those materials can be better recycled or reprocessed at the end. Um, It's all kind of focused on taking that longer term view of the use of materials from the very beginning of the project. So are there, are there any particular benefits you can pull out on, say, the A14? Because that, that's due to open later this spring, isn't it? Do you know what so, they've managed to deliver there? So for the A14, one of the things I spoke to uh, David Smith at ACOM, he's their technical director for business sustainability. One of the things that he mentioned was that with the A14 project, they actually came, ACOM came on board during the detailed design phase. So most of the kind of key elements of the scheme had already been designed. But with the A303, they've actually had an opportunity to kind of come on board earlier in the scheme. So through the preliminary design phase. So kind of one of the things he mentioned was that joining the project at an earlier stage has allowed them to have a greater influence on the design of the scheme, which kind of really highlighted the benefit of kind of coming on board earlier and making sure that a lot of this thinking is embedded from the very beginning, as opposed to, you know, trying to fit things in at the very end. Um, so, you know, for for example, with the circular economy requirements with the A303 scheme, it's been integrated into the contract. So potential contractors coming on board have to really show particular behaviours and deliverables that can demonstrate circular economy thinking. So all of these principles are embedded right the way throughout the scheme. It sounds like there are lots of benefits, but are there still some barriers to actually bringing circular economy thinking into major projects? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things is obviously circular economy thinking is quite it's quite a nuanced idea a nuanced concept so i think different organizations will have a very different perspective on how that should be applied and have a different understanding of what it actually means and so if you are kind of trying to implement a lot of this these principles onto a scheme it's so crucial to have kind of a clear communication and collaboration across all the stakeholders involved so that everyone's you know really focused on the processes and also their outcomes and without that it just becomes really really difficult to implement anything and then also I think one of the things that David Smith actually highlighted was the importance of having that kind of buy-in from the client you know if you don't have a client who's committed and really understands what you're trying to achieve it that's a huge blocker. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, Bentley's infrastructure digital twins enable you to combine engineering, reality and IoT data of assets above and below ground to visualise, track change and perform analysis to optimise asset quality and performance. If you need help to embrace change and realise the benefits of a digital innovation within your business, speak to Bentley. We can help accelerate your digital advancement, help you make better decisions, gain insight and achieve better business outcomes. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital. I guess this is a good point to introduce our special guest for this episode, who is Stephen Boyle from Zero Waste Scotland, whose specialist subject is circular economies. Stephen is a strategic programme manager and oversees provision of a variety of support services to local authorities, resource management businesses and third sector organisations. Nonetheless, his main focus is on the construction sector and supporting the industry to embed a more circular approach to use of materials and ways of working. 
Stephen's team supports construction businesses to adopt and evidence benefits of the actions that keep materials in high value use for longer. Their work is key to influencing decision makers both within the industry and at national le- national policy level to make impactful action that will generate lasting change. So welcome, Stephen. Hello, everyone. Yes, hi. What exactly does the circular economy mean when it's applied to construction? Well, the circular economy itself is is about um, valuing materials and a society where there is no such thing as waste. And within the construction sector, you look at the broad spectrum of both infrastructure and buildings and looking at them as products in their own right, but also looking at materials within them at the same time um, and putting a real value uh, on those materials and buildings. Um following the lines of making things last, uh, where we keep these things in use for longer, and at the end of their first life, looking to see where we can take those materials, retain their value, and reuse them within our society again, um, primarily, hopefully, for the same use. And in doing so, we create this circular economy, moving away from the linear, which is to extract, make, and throw away, um, to to then use and use again um, and, again, as I say, get greater value of the products and resources that we have. So a lot of people would say it's another term for recycling. How is it different? Mm. So uh, the one thing that uh, circular economy is, is about waste. Um, and it's not recycling, it's to, to take something and then remanufacture it into something else. The circular economy is primarily about uh, valuing the materials that you have and reusing those materials uh, for as many uh, for as many times as you possibly can before reintroducing them back into the natural environment. Um, there, there are stages like recycling um, and remanufacturing which help and support it, but they aren't true circular economy. It's about valuing the material, that wood, that brick, valuing those and reusing them for as many times as we can. So the one thing it isn't about is waste. Um, So is there a recent project that you would say is exemplar in in, in demonstrating how to use a circular economy approach and the benefits that are kind of related to those principles? Um, yes, there are there are projects around to uh, take take forward a lot of the different principles that um, that that we um, we speak about within a circular economy. Um, some of the some of the projects and the examples that we can that that we reference are, are unfortunately are abroad uh, in places like the Netherlands. Um, but there are some examples here uh, in the UK that we can reference. But it's it's fundamentally one of our goals is to create examples in Scotland. Uh, within the infrastructure um, sector, then what we actually do wish is to um, is to promote some of those. So um, there, there has been some projects um, in recent times within the infrastructure area uh, which have demonstrated how we can take things forward and repurpose and reuse materials that were used originally in their, their main state. So one of the so one of the examples um, could be is, is a project which was to take um, materials from road surfaces and the refurbishment of roads and to take those, um, to take coal tar based materials um, and re- re- repurpose them um, and, and, and grade them and blend them um, with other, other materials to be reused again as another road surface. And we've seen examples of that in Scotland with the approval of the Scottish Environment Protection Agency in the repurposing and reconstitution within the roads such as the M9, A702, A75 and others. So that's where we take a product that was used for a road surface, taking it away, repurposing it and bringing it back on again to begin be reused as a road surface again within roads in Scotland. And that's and that's a that's a that would, that would be an infrastructure project one. Yeah, because um, it's quite interesting. Sorry. No, sorry, carry on. I was going to say it's quite interesting step forward to see um, 
asphalt being recycled onto motorways because I mean it's been recycled for a long time but onto low grade roads in the past. Yeah. Yes. Yes, no, the, the use of an M9 was a definite uh, was a definite positive. Um and that's where we that that that's um that is one of the things which is uh, fantastic about that is it has been reused, but it's very much an end of pipe reaction. And we want what we really need is we wish people to rethink or think right from the beginning of a process and the design of new roads, new buildings, um, about the materials that they're putting in and not just what they're being used for at that moment in time, but how those materials can be uh, maintained throughout the life of the product, in this example, the M9, but how they can be uh, recovered uh, at the end of their life as well and reused somewhere else um, for you know the benefit of society as a whole. So you mentioned earlier about the Netherlands, there being exemplar projects there. Is the UK quite a long way behind other countries in the world as far as circular economies? Um, there are, uh, within the construction sector, there's a lot of very good examples and um, some very nice targets or, or some set targets within countries such as the Netherlands. And we often... We often speak about the Netherlands um, because they took early action in the construction sector. But if we just take circular economy as a whole, then the UK is actually um, very, you know, quite far ahead in, in their actions on the circular economy, um, um, especially within Scotland uh, with its uh, making things last strategy and the um, slightly delayed now uh, because of the, the coronavirus um, epidemic. Um, we, of course, are about to publish and, and to create the first circular economy bill uh, uh, in the UK, here in Scotland. So, uh, and within Scotland, the Scottish Government and Zero Waste Scotland, we, we won, we've won awards for the circular economy for some of the work that we have been doing over the past five, six years in promoting circular economy principles um, within within businesses and industry uh, in Scotland. So, um, so to say uh, we're not, we are actually one of the leading lights, the leading drivers of circularity in the world. Okay. Why is it critical for the construction industry to adopt circular economies, in your opinion? So um, I think it's because the the built environment as a whole in the construction sector, which supplies it, is fundamentally one of the most important sectors uh, in the country within the world, actually. Um, they use um, anywhere up to 50 to 60% of all materials in an annual basis. Uh, they contribute more than 40% um, of any of our carbon emissions. And when we look at the um, climate emergency that we're in, um, it's very much, it's very important that uh, the built environment as a whole um, is as circular and sustainable as it possibly can to reduce the air impact uh, on the climate and so it's very, very important that we that we um, look at sustainability and environmental impacts. But also, if we introduce the circular economy into that mix, we believe that we can uh, take forward all of the different sustainable uh, 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 tranches um, and improve those um, and, and make the society better. So that sustainable economic growth uh, target by the Scottish Government can be achieved, which as well as creating financial and jobs and opportunities for growth, also helps and sustains people, um, protects their um, well-being and health, and at the same time protects the environment through the reuse of materials, uh, the uh, non-invasion and uh, protection of our natural capital. And of course, if we are uh, energy efficient uh, in the work that we are doing, uh, within the buildings and infrastructure. We contribute to things such as fuel poverty, um, re energy security and resource security for, 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 for Scotland and the UK. So it's very important. And so how does Zero Waste Scotland actually support the industry in adopting these circular economy principles? 
there are there are two primary uh, things which we do. One is we um, we do research and do demonstrations of uh, the correct approaches to circularity, building up an evidence bank, and we then take that to policymakers and decision makers to influence change in Scotland and to give uh, government officials and others. Uh, the tools and evidence that they can take uh, to use to make those policy changes and to, of course, raise their awareness and understanding. The other thing that we do is that, uh, as well as is helping to create those drivers and create demand for change that regulation and policy and strategies do, is uh, to support the industry um, at, the, at, at its grassroots to, to be able to react to the asks of government, to the, uh, the asks of policy. And we have um, what, uh, a construction advice and support service, which is free for all uh, Scottish small to medium-sized enterprises to help and support them move to a more sustainable and circular um, model. So, um, yeah, so we, we help them, we help them um, right from the beginning to design out waste, to design for adaptability, to tackle um, things such as site waste management, look for um, ways of designing for deconstruction and recovery of material, um, and also so uh, so we have a full package of support that's that's there and available for businesses, as well as opportunities to help them look at uh, circular economy. Um, business models um, so we can help look at different models for them and do studies and build up business cases for change and also there is of course some grants that we also uh, manage and award to people to help uh, shape and change um, and, and introduce new products or new services uh, which all fit in within the circular economy model. So a lot of construction businesses have introduced or declared um, carbon net zero targets this year. What role do you think that circular economies have to play in achieving those targets? Well, there, there, is, a, there's, there is a key way of uh, engaging from the beginning of any project, be that a new build uh, or a, the re, a, a refurbishment or a, a maintenance programme, where um, introducing resource efficiency and um, energy efficiency in can drive down what, what we call um, net zero operational carbon. So that's the operational carbon from the transportation of the materials, the, the power that's used in the work that you then do on the construction or maintenance, uh, and also the operational carbon in the, the materials and buildings and the, throughout the lifetime of that then that that that, that asset. Um, but what's also there um, and about 50% of all of the lifetime carbon of a building uh, on average uh, is the embedded or embodied carbon, uh, which is in the materials um, within that building uh, and infrastructure. And if we can, if we can look at that and value that, um, protect those materials throughout their lifetime, recover those materials and reuse them in new buildings and new infrastructure, then we can greatly reduce the carbon impact of those buildings um, and now and in the future. Uh, and that's very important for reducing our overall net zero carbon uh, impacts for Scotland and helping not only us achieve our net operational net zero carbon targets by 2030, but reaching the, the, all the net zero carbon targets that we have in Scotland for 2045. So from your point of view, what are the best ways for companies or projects to adopt a circular economy approach? And is there kind of a, a published best practice or frameworks that are available for organisations to use and reference? Yes, there is a, a number of publications out there which help and support uh, the way that people should think about uh, circular economy. We ourselves have created uh, training materials for universities and colleges, uh, to help support uh, the learning process from a very early stage. And we also have um, guides and tools which people can use to learn and to grow 
And we also work with organisations such as the Supply Chain Sustainability School um, and others um, to, to put out materials there and to teach and help people understand and learn what the circular economy is and how they can implement it. So if we take just one guide, for example, we have a guide called uh, Designing Out Waste Guide. Um, it's there, it, there is, is there for designers, uh, clients, designers and architects to help them understand the different approaches that they can take in the design stage of a, a project to incorporate circular design, circular economy design principles. Um, and in doing that, they then drive energy efficiency, resource efficiency, including water efficiency uh, throughout the lifetime of the building. And um, and and at the end of its building, recover the value from those materials and products. The 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 word that you'll hear me say a great deal is is value, and the one thing which is uh, the the biggest barrier is is overcoming what people think is the value uh, their their definition of value. Value isn't the cost of building something now. It's about the whole life value of a product or a building. And if we can look at the whole life value, the whole life cost, and take that into consideration, um, that is probably the very first step that we would really like to see people take. So what role does procurement play in the um, circular economy process? Well, procurement is uh, is uh, uh, one of the greatest fundamental tools of of driving forward uh, the circular economy, because um, fundamentally people will not do anything unless they're required to do it. So, um, you know, you have policies and strategies, but unless the client or the person procuring a service ask for something to happen, then it is unlikely to happen. Um, simply because it's probably not costed into the response to that procurement exercise. So the procurement is 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 really important to get right. Um, and again, um, there are help and support out there and how you can actually do it. Sustainable procurement guides. There's numbers of those around. We even at Zero Waste Scotland have our own circular uh, the procurement guide um, and within the Scottish Government there, there there's actions at this very moment in time looking at um, sustainable and circular procurement guides, looking at prioritisations um, helping people to understand how they prioritise the value of what they were trying to do taking into consideration not just the capex cost of how much a building is but what the other values that they have including the compliance with regulation and standards, and also the well-being of others, um, and 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 their emer uh, sorry climate emergency. So, um, yeah. So procurement is key to getting it right and getting it put into a design and into a, a project from the very very start. And so, who do you think is best placed to drive the adoption of the the concept? And you know, do you think it needs to come from the client or perhaps elsewhere in the supply chain? The supply chain will deliver what the client asks for. So the client is is the, the is the very first person who must understand what they actually want and what they should value. Um, so the re raising the education and understanding of the client is very very important. Um, and as I said, um, part of our work is to do demonstrations and to build up evidence so that we can put that in front of the client, put it in front of policymakers to give them the the knowledge and the confidence that um, the thing that they ask for is not just achievable, but that it is also beneficial to them and meets their needs and uh, meets their values. So, yeah, I would say that the client is by far the most important person in this um, to actually stimulate the change. Um, but as I said, we have a net, we, we ourselves are set up to also have a supporting mechanism there for the businesses who are then asked to deliver against that so that they understand what the client's asking for and so that they can help deliver that ask. So can you share with us some of your experience of working with clients to drive use of circular economies in the construction sector? Good, bad and, bad and the ugly, I guess. So yes, I can share some um, some some examples or 
some recollections of working with different companies. Um, we are actually doing some some really lovely early work with uh, a, a well-being wellness uh, company at the moment called PS Wellness. They are um, looking at building a, a new wellness centre, um, and they are right at, right at the start of their thinking around about what they would like to have. Um, and they have embraced um, the circular economy principles and are talking to their architects and, and builders about how they can incorporate those ideas into their into their um, design uh, using natural materials primarily with low embedded carbon. Uh, using mechanical fixings so that they can adapt their buildings to different different uses. So it gives them a added advantage in that they can change a, 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 an area where personal treatments can be taking place, then open that up potentially later when different demands are put on their building for perhaps a physical exercise area. So you need a larger area. So putting that flexibility in the building, how that then gives them added advantage as they go down the line for that ad adaption. And of course, because we talk a lot about um, low embedded carbon using natural materials, that also fits into the wellness part of what they're doing because it's, there's lots of there's studies out there that show um, green spaces, natural materials such as wood and stone, uh, they actually increase people's well-being. So it uh, makes people who are working in an area like that happier and increases their productivity. So um, these all of those different factors all work in very well uh, for, for, for that this business working with us to do it. Um, so that's just that's just uh, you know when you asked about a client earlier, this is a that's a client who is fully embracing it and will be incorporating that into the, the work that they're doing. And are there any kind of common pitfalls that people tend to struggle with when they're adopting a circular economy approach? Um, yeah, well, there are there are always um, there are always challenges um, when we taking when we're looking at these things. Um, there are um, when we when we talk about reusing products and materials, there is always uh, a, 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 we need to take recognition of legislative barriers um, because you know when someone doesn't need something anymore, wants something, it then becomes a waste. Um, now um, we have been working with our, our our partners here in Scotland, Scottish Environment Protection Agency, to have an understanding about um, where product or a material is taken in its normal state and then reused, then that is no longer that that is never a waste because it is um it is a product with a value which is then reused. And so there are ways that we can we can work together to ensure and put these and and, and to 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 go forward with uh, the circular economy and, and remove that barrier. Um, but there is also um there are also things around about risk that we need to address. So um, reusing a product, um, that product itself may not have um, the same um, product standards um, and, and guarantees that go along with it because you are using something which has been used before. Um, and of course, there is always the issues around about uh, financing um, these types of things. Um, but the, the benefits of doing all of these things outweigh these um, these barriers, and we can overcome them. And the 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 things along the lines of all the, all around the um, tackling our climate emergency, reducing our carbon footprint, um, creating a resource security, because products that we use, reuse in Scotland are here, they're part of Scotland, we don't have to import them from abroad um, which is you know, challenging at this time um, but we're also, we're saving our resources and we're also protecting our natural capital so our place in Scotland, we aren't actually extracting these materials from the ground uh, anymore uh, we're actually able to retain our, our natural and beautiful uh, countryside so that we don't have to gain these materials So, yeah so we've talked a lot about the business side of circular economies, but I was just wondering what it is that you find interesting on a personal level about them. What inspires you about them? 
Okay, so um, there is there's two aspects to that. One is is that I see the uh, incredible benefits the circular economy will have on improving our environment, protection, protecting us against the climate emergency, um, and I'm very driven by that um, by that agenda. But one of the one of the but the, the the whole thing about the circular economy and working with businesses to take forward the circular economy is that the whole change of behaviour and mindset that people have to go into to actually embrace this process. And and it's it's, it's really as wonderful working with businesses uh, and seeing that spark of recognition and seeing that change in behaviour which is kind which is needed to embrace all of the different principles that we talk about. Um, the the, the 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 anecdotally um we, we talk about this servitization within circular economy where why do you need to own something when it's not necessarily the thing you need it's the service that it gives you so the lighting for example is one of those things where you actually only need a light in a room you don't need a light fitting in a bulb so why do you need to own that light and bulb when you can actually pay someone for that light and they therefore are responsible for the light fitting the the refurbishment of it and that product itself and if anything goes wrong with it they have to maintain it and look after it so it's in their best interest to create the best light use the best light systems uh, that need the least amount of maintenance so it improves the quality of materials that they use and the quality of the products and just saying that to people about yeah just Rent, rent light and you see them thinking well no we can do that we we work in an office area we can do that we don't we don't rent things and then you suddenly say to them around the pile well do you have your own photocopier do you have a photocopier and you said yeah of course we do and said do you own that photocopier no no it's part of oh we rent that don't we and that self-realization that yes it's, it can be done uh, it's just taking it that next step and realization of the behavior change. So it's 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 so doing that, working with people, I think is 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 definitely uh, one of the one of the best things. And just looking back a bit, when did you first become aware of the circular economy concept? Um, sustainability has been part of my um, experience and work for for probably somewhere in the region of twenty years. Um, it's only in the last um, six or seven years when I started working with Zero Waste Scotland that I was really introduced to the circular economy. And um, I, I've, I've grown to learn about it and understand it. And um, and it, it's in that sort of time period where um, I went from seeing things as being potentially sustainable uh, to actually understanding that they're actually circular. Um, and it's funny. It's funny. You look back at the way that we, have, we as a country, as a nation, have have, have worked for the last hundred years, and actually, um, you listen to your grandparents and about the way that they worked. You know, the way that they took a sock and darned it, and the way that they 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 lived on a daily basis. A hundred years ago, uh, the UK was very much more of a circular economy nation than it is today. We went through a period where um, the throwaway society, as they call it, has happened. What we need to do now is we need to try and get back to that circular economy. And how did you gain knowledge about circular economies? Um, so I, the Helen MacArthur Institute, um, they were they were introduced to me when I first came part of circular. Uh, part of um, Zero Waste Scotland, um, but I've also um, had my own personal learning uh, and I've, uh, you know, attending lectures and seminars and reading books on the subject, particularly some very interesting books and and, and materials from from organisations such as uh, CEDA and uh, um, uh, and the Great, the, the the building council for the UK. Um, they're they're they they have some fantastic publications on the circular economy, um, and 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 it's been a bit of a personal growth um, uh, and and learning. As I said earlier on, we are now introducing 
the circular economy into education, uh, working with universities and colleges in Scotland, so that it, it raises the, their knowledge and their understanding of the circular economy right when they're studying, doing their degrees and, um, and national diplomas and the like. Um, I wish actually I had been introduced at that period, in that, that stage. Um, yeah. And so looking across the, the wider industry, do you think there is enough awareness and understanding of what a circular economy, economy actually is? And I think there's an education piece in there. Um, we are um, within, the, within the realms of um, sustainability. It is a well and truly, um, I would say that that is beginning to fully get embedded within the way that the construction sector are working or, or their understanding, I should say. Um, the concepts of circularity are, 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 are relatively new. Um, modern methods of construction, though, off-site construction um, and the way that that is, is, is taking the industry forward from both the commercial and the, the home building, uh, that is really beginning to champion championing the the whole circular economy ethos. Um, so I would say it's growing, but we've got a bit of way to go um, building on the good foundation of sustainability understanding uh, to to raise awareness of what the circular economy is can, and can be within the built environment. So what action do you think the industry needs to take to increase awareness of circular economies? Um, first of all, um, it is very much a, a, a learning. People need to learn. Um, work that has been done through organisations such as the Supply Chain Sustainability School and others uh, in raising awareness of what the circular economy is working with large tier one contractors and businesses, some of the UK's biggest, on these issues, um, and then disseminating that across the industry to smaller businesses and companies within their supply chains. Um, that, that learning and education piece is very important for raising people's awareness. And then, um, then there is the whole policy and strategy drivers, uh, which ask for businesses to think differently um, and raising that awareness with others. So um, what can we do is we can design circularity and ask for it in procurement exercises. And that will drive industry to think differently and to deliver differently for, for both Scotland and the UK. And by doing that, we can get change. Sounds like there's lots of work still to do. Um, thanks for joining us today, Steve. And I found that really interesting. I think it's a topic we're going to be hearing a lot more about this year and hopefully seeing put into action on projects too. So thank you. You're very welcome. Love to talk to So that's it. Another episode of the Engineers Collective in the bag. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoy listening to these podcasts, we'd love for you to share it with your friends and your colleagues. Share it online, leave us a nice review, and we'll see you next time. In the meantime, from everyone at New Civil Engineer, Stay well and stay safe.